What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. Really excited to jump through and talk about something a little bit more basic, let's say elementary, to catch everyone up to speed. Our community has grown about 50% in the last 12 months, and some of you are here learning about finance for the first time, and I'm really excited that we are the launching point for you. I've received a bunch of questions on some of the basics around investing and paying off debt versus investing and how all that kind of looks. So I'm really, really pumped to go through this. For some of you who've been here several years, this might be an overview of probably dozens of podcasts all consolidated in one spot. Thank you all for being here. Really excited to have you here. Before we jump into the show, let's hear from today's sponsor, which is Contract Diagnostics. And they're a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their career, most likely a few additional times as well. Now, I really like this company. They've helped tons of our clients, tons of our community. They've helped 10,000 or actually a little bit more than that understand not only what they're signing, but what risks that they're taking with their family when you're signing that contract. All the contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented back in a simplified way, which is one of my favorite things that they do from their deliverable standpoint. Using custom documentation, compensation data, and they work with you outside of normal business hours. So it makes it easy for you to work with them. So if you need your contract reviewed, highly recommend that you work with them. All their packages are a flat price. Those of you that know what we do for a living, we love a flat priced structure. So you're going to know what you pay for up front and residents and fellows can make interest-free payments over time. So check them out at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526 or you can email them info at contractdiagnostics.com. And like I always do, I'll make sure that I put the link in the description of the show you're listening to us right now in. All right, so I would like to get started, and I know that this is a little bit more beginner, like I mentioned just briefly, and that some of you, this might be stuff that you already know, but I still think there might be little pieces that you might be able to get around. So definitely stick around because this will probably be a really good overview of how to invest wisely, should you pay off debt or invest, maybe get you thinking a little bit different about your money mindset, which is always fun. Now, I know from dozens and dozens of emails that have come through over probably the last just 90 days, probably since the beginning of 2021, I've received some questions around it being tough to really grasp how to invest and how to do it correctly. And here's a little secret as a financial planner, right? It's only as complicated as you make it. Now you might be thinking, okay, hey, my parents or some of our peers or someone had said, hey, you probably should open up like a Roth IRA or you should start investing with some app. And I know that 2021 is pretty much the year of FOMO and I see it everywhere with not being invested or what your friends are invested in or what the media is constantly telling you what you should be doing or how GameStop is going through the roof or Bitcoin or something else. Now, when and how you invest depends on your unique situation. And I want you to understand that right up front, because what I do and what some of our clients do and what some of the community members do is all different based on our unique needs and personal finance is personal. So before diving into random stocks on some random investing app that a friend uses, spend a few minutes mapping out your objectives. And the easiest way to do that is by creating an investment policy statement. Now, when one of our clients hires us as financial planners, 
we often work together to create not only the financial plan, but one small subset of the financial plan being the investment policy statement. And the investment policy statement is really a roadmap for your investments. It's a document that is going to lay out kind of your rules for investing, your investment goals, some of your objectives, and maybe even strategies that you will implement or your advisor may implement based on your objectives. Now, you can create the investment policy statement whether you're working with an advisor or not. And I think the first thing that any of you should probably do is try to figure out what your risk tolerance and your need and ability to take risk are. And when you start to go through that process, you're already starting the bits and pieces that kind of make up an investment policy statement. So if I just quickly outline, maybe there's five or six different objectives or key points that you would like to put into your investment policy statement. The first one being just a quick executive summary. And when you're taking soap notes, this is that S part, right? Your name, your age, your portfolio descriptions, maybe where you live. It could be the value of your current assets. It could even be desired returns. And that's interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. And then you can put here where you think your to risk tolerance would be and also your risk capacity or the need to take a risk. And I think that is going to be very different for all of you. And we'll talk through a little bit of that in a second as well. Next, I'd probably line out some objectives. And this would be your goals, right? I'm coming back as a registered life planner. I'm always talking about goals. And the same holds true for your investments. And so you want your goals, whether it's long-term growth or capital appreciation, you want to add in your risk profile. This could be your time horizon. It could be short-term liquidity needs, like how quick would you need cash if something was to occur. And I think having some true talk with yourself and having it broken out for an expectation of long-term rate of return. And there's lots of great articles out there, lots of great books written. Tons of people have dug into the data and looked over the past 100, 150 years of stock market data. What do we expect to return? The TLDR on that, maybe 9 to 10%, depending on your risk makeup. Next, if you're working with a financial planner, I think this would be really important to add in their duties and responsibilities into your investment policy statement. Not every planner does this, not everyone needs to do this, but I think it's a good starting point, especially if you don't really understand how your investments are being done correctly. I'm not going to argue that you shouldn't be working with that plan in the first place, but I'll add it here is this is where you could say, hey, look, I want to put this together and I really want you to outline how these things work and what your duties and responsibilities are, right? This is where maybe is their shared duties. This is where they should put down their fiduciary duty and write that down, put it in writing that they're fiduciary across all your accounts 100% of the time. This could be how they want to invest. Do they need to confer with you before investments are made or not? Are they going to report back to you for specific performances? What's included in those reports? That's where I would outline all of that. Not every advisor wants to do that. Sometimes it's a little overkill, but if you don't feel 100% comfortable knowing what you're invested in and how your entire portfolio works together, then you need to put something like that in writing. Next piece I'd probably add is some portfolio, let's call them selection guidelines. And this is stuff that's going to dive into your asset allocation. It should give you a breakdown of what percentage of your portfolio is invested in, say, in stocks what might be in bonds, what might be in alternative investments or real estate. And any further breakdown by asset class is really, really critical here. And it kind of gives you a high level 50,000 foot view framework of really your investment plan. And then how would you rebalance 
those assets to that allocation. So I would have in the next section be talking all about rebalancing, when to rebalance and how to rebalance, I think would be really, really important here. Whether you're going to do it through bands or time horizon, everyone is different. There's no right or wrong. There's better ways, I think, to do it than others, but I won't get too deep into that here. And then this last section, and this is probably the one I'm the least stoked on. I'm not super into this, but is performance reporting. And this is where you can lay out how your investments have been performing is there a benchmark? What maybe accepted deviation from that benchmark should be detailed out? And this is where when you're an active investor, and we'll talk about that in a second, that is more important than anything because you need to know what your benchmark was and how are you performing to that benchmark. Whereas passive investors, we don't really care about the performance. We want to be highly diversified, low cost, owning everything, so to speak not trying to outsmart the market or to beat a benchmark. We want to be the benchmark. And so this I'm not very excited from, but I know some of you out there are active investors or working with advisors, active investors. And again, I don't like that methodology. I don't subscribe to that philosophy, but for those that do, this is really important. So having an investment policy statement gives you this common point of reference to revisit before making any changes to your portfolio. That means if you're going to, let's say we've received a ton of comments around Bitcoin. If you want to add Bitcoin to your portfolio, that's totally fine. If you have a framework and a methodology to add this in and some kind of safeguards to prevent unnecessary changes or changes too quickly. And then that really starts to build this behavior of active investing and trying to time the market. Example would be, hey, I'd love to add XYZ to my portfolio mix. And by doing that, I will not allow myself to make any changes for at least 90 days. I will think through this. I will write out blah, blah, blah. You're going to write all this out. And that's kind of where you're going to come back into your objectives and your guidelines to building out your portfolio. And I think investment policy statements are a very, very clean, easy way to do this and allows you to go, does that fit this mix? Yes or no. It's very black and white. It's awesome. So some of the things that you might highlight, I'll go over the easy ones, right? Stocks and bonds. There's alternative investments in real estate and all sorts of other things you can kind of go down. But let's stay with stocks and bonds for a second. A stock is a share in a public company. This is totally fine. Again, I know that unfortunately, this is why this whole podcast exists, is that you did not learn about personal finance in medical school, in undergrad. We should be honestly teaching this to our six-year-olds, not just expecting this when we actually become 18 that we just all of a sudden know how to manage money. But some of you think that this concept of a stock doesn't really tie back to a company. So a stock is a share in a public company. Think about the brands whose products you maybe buy. This could be Coke or Pepsi, could be Ford, could be Amazon, could be Google, could be Kraft Foods. These companies put shares out basically in the stock market and they divide up the shares so that individual investors can go in and purchase those out on the open market. And at its core, what buying a stock does is actually make you a very small owner in that company. Now, shares can be worth more or less based on how the company is performing or how optimistic various, let's call them observers, feel about their future. And their value is constantly changing. As long as the market is open, you can buy and sell your shares almost instantly, pretty much at any time, as long as the market is open. That's why the value is always changing. So if, if a stock is a share in a company or a small percentage of ownership, then a bond is a small percentage of debt for that company or government. 
when you buy a bond, you're basically making a loan to the company. So let's say Walmart puts out a corporate bond and you're buying this bond and the company will use your money to achieve whatever goals they have. And in exchange, they're going to pay you back the amount that they borrowed plus something additional. And that is your interest. And companies aren't the only ones with debt. So we talk sometimes about treasuries or T-notes and we're talking about basically the federal government's debt. When you buy a bond fund, you're going to own a whole bunch of all of this stuff mixed up. Now, I referenced active investing before, and I'm going to break down this high level because I think we've talked about this a lot on the show. But again, this is more for those that are maybe new to financial residency or would just like an overview. So passive investing is a set it and forget it. I put that in quotes, investment strategy. Once passive investors decide on their allocation, you might not adjust it for several years but you need to be reviewing it every six to 12 months to make sure that it is still relevant, that nothing has changed. But when you're passive investing, you're buying basically ETFs or mutual funds that are index funds. They're tracking the overall index and you're trying to buy low cost, highly diversified index funds that will own basically everything. You're not trying to actively pick a stock and say, I think Tesla is going to go up today. Therefore, I'm going to buy it. Again, not investment advice, just throwing out an example here. Passive investors don't really trade that often. And so it ends up being more tax efficient than active investing. And on top of that, there are a lot lower fees with the passive index funds since you're not in paying for an investment manager to go out and pick stocks trying to beat some benchmark, which is what really active investing is doing. In theory, all the active investors that are buying all these expensive funds and they're, they are the ones that have essentially drove fees lower for all of us that want to passively invest. So I appreciate them, even though I don't agree with their philosophy. So active investing is more involved than passive investing by far. You're either going to be that investment manager or you're hiring an investment manager by buying an actively traded fund who is constantly going to run analysis on what stocks to buy and sell. What do they think is going to be doing great in outperforming the market as a whole? And this strategy is typically more expensive than passive investing. You're going to be paying this manager a much higher expense ratio built into their fund, or you are going to be doing it yourself. And it's really hard to dissect and go through when it's really hard to actually communicate this over a podcast to thousands of you, because there will be some of you that are going to go, yeah, Ryan, I know that passive investing is better, but I think I can pick the winners. I think Tesla is going to go to the moon or Peloton's going to do this or whatever the strategy is. And I think having you go through that and doing it with a little bit of money and seeing that you aren't likely going to beat the market over the long term, maybe it'll take two, three, five years to work through and you look back and go, oof, I probably should have just bought the market as a whole. It was a lot easier. And yeah, that was fun, but it was a lot easier and I'd have made a lot more money. We just had a client that brought over a, an active fund that they had managed and they were down about 15% over the last 10 years. And you think about the last 10 years of returns the market's up 400%. So not only did they not make money, they lost money, but then they lost on all those potential gains that we have had if you were just basically passive investing over time. That's a really hard pill to swallow if you think about it, but some of you will need that in order to go, oh, maybe passive investing is where it's at. And passive investing typically has had higher returns because over time, the active managers can't actually beat the index or the benchmark that they have 
So switching around here for a second and talking about maybe when to invest, because that is also something else I've been getting emailed about is, okay, I maybe know how to invest, but when do I actually do it? And I think it's pretty simple to put it bluntly. It's when you have excess cash flow. Now, what quote unquote invest means is the tricky part because investing might take the form of investing in your further education or improving your overall well-being. Investing for your future could also mean paying down your debt or maybe even saving for your children's education expenses. Or it could take the form of what I've just been talking about here, investing in the markets and other investment vehicles. So I think that is very different for everyone. There's maybe a couple of rules here that I can give you is one, never invest money you can't afford to lose. I think that's a pretty easy one, even though somehow we as humans forget that one quite a bit and make sure that you're not actually putting your emergency money into the market. That is meant for an emergency, not to be invested and try to eke out a little more return on. And I think the second one that everyone's kind of gotten this wake up call for is don't forget to pay your taxes. So if you've made money and maybe you're actively selling some stuff or you were saying, okay, hey, look, I'm going to subscribe to this passive investing concept and I'm going to liquidate some of these things and go invest passively. Great. Except for one, make sure that you are taking taxes into account. Did you have giant gains that were inside the stuff that you're going to move over to passively invested strategy? If so, make sure you're going to withhold for your taxes. Somehow we always forget to pay those or at least forget to account for those. We don't forget to pay them. We forget to account for it and then we feel stuck and that's not really fun. So if your basic expenses aren't already covered, if you're a resident or there might be a chase, well, stop now for a second and realize that it's okay. Residency is about survival and getting through. And if there's anything you can do, just try not to rack up a bunch of debt and please don't forget to pay your taxes while you're at it. Now I get asked a lot around, should I pay off debt or invest? Absolutely going to be the number one question that I get asked. And I'm going to say that answer lies with each and every one of you. Personal finance is personal and I'll give you a little bit of criteria, but it really depends on your circumstances. And those circumstances could include how much credit card debt you may carry or what your interest rates are or how much you've been investing in your 401k. Have you been maxing out or not? Do you receive an employer match? There's all sorts of stuff. But remember this, when you have debt, everything you buy is on borrowed money at that point. So if an interest rate is low enough, it might make sense to carry the debt, but only if you're going to turn around and actually invest the money. And that's where most people fail. They fail to invest the money. When they have a low interest rate, they'll say, oh, that's too cheap. I'll just turn around and invest it. And then they actually forget to invest the money itself and defeats the whole point of this. Now, I don't want you guys to try to time the market. Right? We just talked about passive and active investing, but research has shown that investors who are trying to time the market as a whole don't realize higher returns. And you can maybe associate that with actively managed strategies, but it also works on the passive side as well. So you got to be careful. Given the nature of the market, there's no way to tell what's going to happen tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now, right? Blogs and podcasts and TV shows and YouTube, they feature these quote unquote experts who convincingly share their predictions for the future market performance but the hard truth is they're rarely correct. I could go back for the last 13, 14 years since the 2008 correction, and I could find 2007's when it really started, an article that basically says, we're going to fall again. The market is going to tumble. We're going to have another correction. We're going to see a recession or a depression every year. And I'm not talking like some random Joe Schmo on a blog. 
I'm talking about the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, you name it. Any large publication has been saying this. And it's because they don't know what's coming and they're taking a guess with the, the data that they have. But they're trying to put out these predictions for future market performance. And no one has a crystal ball. Remember that. No one has a crystal ball. No one knows what's actually going to come tomorrow. If they did, you would have heard everyone at the beginning of February of 2020. This is very relevant for all of you. You would have heard everyone screaming, sell the market. We're going to drop 35, 40%. Sell, 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 right? Jim Cramer's, you would have heard it. But guess what? No one was saying that. No one was panicking. No one knew what was actually going to happen. So just please take that with a grain of salt. Anywhere you hear some quote unquote expert, they're sharing some prediction they have. They're making it up. They don't know what is actually going to happen. Now, to help protect yourself against investing at the wrong time, you can use dollar cost averaging. And dollar cost averaging has been proven to be one of the best ways to build wealth over time. And the technique basically entails investing the same amount of money at regular intervals over time. Because you're buying into the investment at different price points, you're going to end up paying a different average of its changing price over time. But you're already doing this if you put money into a 401k or 403b. And you might not just know it yet, but you are, right? Every time you're putting money in, your dollar cost average applies to the same thinking to the rest of your portfolio. Every time that money goes in from your paycheck to your 401k or your 403b, you are essentially dollar cost averaging into those investments. So have it extend out to the rest, your IRA, your taxable account, maybe your HSA, right? Protect your investments by buying into the market at regular intervals rather than trying to time it going, oh, I think we're at the bottom. Okay, buy in now. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So don't treat your investments that way. Actually, just dollar cost average in and sleep well at night knowing that you are dollar cost averaging and taking some of that risk off the table of trying to time the market. Now, speaking of risk, I want to go into a little bit here about your risk tolerance. I think this is a good point that we could maybe chat about this for a second. Investing without knowing your tolerance for risk is like driving without knowing the speed limit. You might think that you're driving at a pace that's comfortable for you, but all of a sudden the drivers around you are passing by staring at you and you're going, well, am I doing the right thing? Am I going too slow, too fast? It's really hard to tell, right? You need to have a speed limit sets it for all of us. Now, some of us are still going to speed past you, but we're breaking the law. Don't do that. Your risk tolerance is the amount of variability in your investment performance that you can withstand. So stocks are much riskier than bonds because their value can change a lot quicker. Investing a ton of money, a large chunk of your portfolio, let's say in one asset might be riskier and probably is riskier than diversifying widely because if something happens in one asset class, that could impact, could be huge on your portfolio if it was weighted too much. So how much should you invest in stocks? That is up to you. And this is not specific investment advice, but you guys know I love rules of thumb and like general things, even though they're not perfect. And this one by no means is perfect. But if you have literally no clue where to start, this is what this whole podcast is about, right? Teaching you guys how to understand the basics of personal finance so you can feel more comfortable and more confident, right? So a general rule of thumb, again, I don't love this one, but it's decent, is that you would take 120 minus your current age. And that is how much you would invest in stocks. Again, not specific investment advice to you, just food for thought. So if you're 30 and you would invest basically 120 minus 30, so 90% would be the amount of stock that you would have. Now I could tell you 
I know hundreds of people, honestly, that if we look at this rule of thumb, it is not perfect for them. I know many people that should never be invested in 90% stock. And I know some people who are invested much lower, let's say 50-50, and shouldn't be invested much higher. But there's another piece to this, and that is your capacity to take risk, right? And your risk capacity complements your risk tolerance. And that basically considers how much risk your portfolio needs inside of it to meet your goals. So if the goals that you have require a high rate of return, then you maybe, let's say, need to make 7% a year over the next 10 years to reach the goal. Well, then your risk capacity is high. You're going to need to maybe make some riskier investments or just allocate more to a riskier type of investment like a stock versus a bond to achieve that goal. This is why I talk a lot about in the show is your need and your ability to take risk. If you make $800,000 a year, you spend $100,000 a year, you're saving a ton of money and your risk tolerance, let's say general rule of thumb is I should be at 85% stock and my risk tolerance is absolutely go push the pedal to the metal and let's go risk on. But in reality, your capacity to take risk is super low because your savings rate's so high. We can control that piece. We can't control the market performance but your savings rate is so high. And I know I'm not being relevant to a lot of you, but it's on purpose. And we do have clients that fit this mold, but I'm giving you this kind of obvious thing because I want to illustrate the point that the need to take risk and the ability to take risk are two separate things. And every single time, if we had someone like that, we would say, yeah, your risk tolerance is much higher than where we think you should invest. But the capacity and what you need to actually be investing in order to achieve your goals is much lower. Don't take the risk when you don't need to take the risk. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about where to invest, right? And this is where I want to say stick to your priorities, pay yourself first, then save for retirement and invest in the markets. But investing in yourself by building up your emergency fund and creating the buffer in your checking account, that's going to give you some peace of mind when unexpected things come up. And then, you know what? Let's actually do it this way. Let's go here and say, Back to the payoff debtor invest. I give a lot of talks to a bunch of residency programs and fellowships, which by the way, you can always email me Ryan at financialresidency.com. If you would have any interest in having me come speak, I don't say yes to all of them, but I would like to say yes to as many as I possibly could with the amount of time that I have. So if you'd like to go, I think we did about 15 last year. I think we've done about six already this year and we're only in April. If you'd like to have me do that, email Ryan at Financial Residency. But to bring this up, because one of the slides that I have when I'm talking is pay off debt or invest. And I'll just give it to you guys here. The first thing I would do is if you have a match, I would invest in your 401k or 403b up to that match. Outside of that, I'd move to the next tier and think of these as waterfalls, right? They're just flowing down, filling up buckets. And as the bucket fills, then you move on. So we filled up the employer match bucket. Now, if you have high interest, let's say 8% or more, this is what I deem as your emergency. You don't need an emergency fund. This is your emergency. Pay this stuff off. Don't accumulate more, pay it off. So this would be your personal loans or credit card debt. Anything that is 8% or more, pay this off. Now, let's say you've extinguished all of that. This is where I would build one month of emergency savings. This is a hot topic for some of you because you've emailed in and said, well, I don't agree with it only needs to be your fixed and variable costs it should have in. That's fine. You save as much in your emergency fund as you would like. But here, what my point is save one month. If money did not come in, but all the money had to go out that you were going to spend, that's how much you save in this kind of third bucket, if you will. 
don't save more, move on because you still need to do some investments and some other things before you add more to that emergency fund. The next would be if you have a health savings account, those are fantastic accounts. We've done a whole show on it. Go back and listen to the entire episode, a whole 45 minutes dedicated to health savings accounts. They are amazing triple tax advantage accounts. Max that sucker out. It's amazing. After that, if you've done that, this would be your Roth IRA or for those that are over the limit doing your backdoor Roth contributions. Once that is done, now you're going to go back to your 401k or your 403b and you're going to fill out the rest of it. That is now we are actually going to turn around and invest more into that 19,500 is what you can do as the employee. And then your emergency savings comes back into play now. So after you've done all the good stuff, coming back to the good old emergency savings, I say save up three months. Some of you want to save six. Now it's interesting and I don't mean to chuckle, but Prior to the pandemic, it was really tough to get any of our physician clients to want to save three months worth. They were going, oh, I think I have better use for this money. We can invest. We could do all these things. Post-COVID, everyone's like, I want to save 12 months, 24 months, three years worth. And I've had to come back the other way. Anything extremes is bad. Not having emergency savings, really bad. Having two to three years of emergency savings, probably really bad. You don't really need that unless you're a retiree. And this is part of that whole build a paycheck for yourself. But for most of you listening, you're within five to 10 years out of training. This is three months to six months is good. If you really are worried or if your job really doesn't have any job security at all, 12 months is perfectly fine in that standpoint. But most of you have pretty secure employment. And I think three months is fine. Once that's done, we're now at number eight in this 10 bucket kind of challenge, if you will. And that's the debt that is anywhere between 5 to 8%. This used to include some mortgage accounts because the interest rate was around 5 6%. And historic average is in the sixes. And it's probably a little bit lower now since we've had such low rates that it is not normal to have rates in 25 to 3% on a 30-year fix, which is what we're in now. And why we say, if you have this, refinance it because this is historic low rates. They're fantastic. But any debts you have, 5 to 8%, pay those off. 9 and 10, these buckets use interchangeably. It's basically any debt that's less than 5% or an individual or joint taxable account. This would also be the apps Robinhood and Acorns and Betterment and those that when you go and open an account with, those are your taxable accounts. I mentioned those because I seem to, for some reason, get a bunch of questions on those recently. But it doesn't matter where you're at. It could be TD, Fidelity, Vanguard a taxable account or paying off debt that is less than 5%, you're doing great at that point. So don't stress on what you should do from there. Now, how much you should invest comes back to the two limits. And I think that's what are your cash flows going to allow and what are the limits placed by the IRS on those accounts that you may be doing. So your employer account, like your 403B or 401K is 19,500. If you have, you're down to your IRAs, whether you're doing directly into Roth or a backdoor Roth, you're at $6,000, right? So that's how much you can invest into those accounts. But when we get that nine and 10 on that water flow list I just went through, which was paying on debt lower than 5% or investing in a taxable account, sky's the limit at that point. However, your cash flow is going to allow, if you've got $10,000 extra every month and that's what you can allocate to your savings, great, put that in. If you've got 100, great, put that in. It doesn't matter. Everyone's going to be very different here. So it it really is not going to make sense if I say a certain number. 
one, I specific advice that I want to do that. But two, everyone is at different points. But as soon as you get down to that nine and 10 bucket, you're winning. You're doing really, really good. Way better than most of your peers will ever be able to admit, but you would be doing really good stuff. And that's where we want to get you through this podcast is understanding how things work, how things flow together, how to make your investments wisely, where to put the money. If that is still going, okay, Ryan, this makes sense, but I'm still a little lost, right? That might be when you need to seek to work with a financial advisor. Not everyone needs to work with one, but if you do, and we've gone through all this and you're like, this is great. I learned a lot, but I'm still confused. Well, maybe at some point doing all this research and decision-making can become overwhelming. And unless you're willing to take this on as a hobby of managing your own money and to building out a financial plan and to building out your investment policy statement, it might make sense to hire a financial advisor. So at Physician Wall Services, we are fee-only financial advisors. We're fiduciaries. We only work with MDs and DOs. We're happy to have a free introductory call with anyone and help you guys build a plan if that is something that you so choose. So again, not everyone needs to do it, but if you've listened to all of this and listened to maybe dozens or hundreds of the podcast episodes and haven't taken action, please take action. Doing something is better than doing nothing. Don't be an ostrich shoving your head in the sand. It's really, really important. Well, I hope this was helpful for you all. I can't wait to go over to our financial malpractice segment. So let's head on over and see what we got next. Michael Relvis from MR Insurance. Michael is a regular here, apparently, at Financial Residency. What's going on, man? Hey, Ryan. How you doing? Good, good, good. I'm excited to have you. You've always got some really good stories for us. So what do you have for us today from a financial horror story in the insurance space? So this is one we see, thankfully, not all that often, but still sadly more often than I think it should happen. Sometimes we buy these policies, disability insurance specifically. Really, it could be regarding term insurance as well. But this exact example is regarding disability insurance. And sometimes we buy a policy thinking it's the right one. We end up coming to find out it's probably not the right one, or maybe there was something else we should have considered. It could even be that your circumstances have changed and you're now eligible for a more competitively priced product or a better policy. Maybe you've had some kids since you originally bought it and you feel a little bit more responsibility. You want a better policy, whatever it is. But really the concept for today is replacing existing disability insurance. And this is an exact case where I remember a person coming to me and saying, I have these existing policies. Would you mind reviewing them? I've been recommended to replace them. And I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. You know, if I made a mistake the first time, that's fine. I don't want to make a second mistake and just keep piling them up. That becomes pretty costly. And so sure enough, I evaluated the policies. He had two policies from two very reputable companies included all of the right riders, definitions. Really, there was no reason those policies should have been replaced unless the person could either save a tremendous amount of money or if perhaps there were some exclusions on those policies and maybe they wouldn't have those exclusions anymore at this time, right? There has to be a good reason. Well, the agent that person was speaking with had recommended replacing the policies with two completely brand new policies indicating that the premium was going to be significantly less costly. So I evaluated the proposals that the person was provided and very quickly recognized that they weren't comparing apples to apples. So the original policies had all the riders they should have. It had partial disability. It had a cost of living adjustment rider. It was true in occupation. Both of those policies had full coverage for mental health conditions. 
And this new agent was recommending two policies without a cost of living adjustment rider. They included a 24-month limitation on benefits for mental health conditions. And the difference in pricing was like 20%. So sure, it saved them a tiny bit of money, but relatively really not that much. And I basically looked at it and said, this is the wrong thing to do. You 100% should not be replacing these policies. There's nowhere near enough savings. And oh, by the way, if you really want to reduce your cost that bad, go ahead and remove the cost of living adjustment rider from your existing policies. It's actually going to put you at a lower premium than what these newly recommended policies would be. So without a doubt, this is a terrible recommendation. You shouldn't replace your policies. And it kind of hurts because it could have been very easy for that other agent to just say, look, you've got good policies. Don't replace them. If you really want to reduce your premium, modify them a little bit. We can do that. There's no additional underwriting involved. It's based on the original age that the policies were put in place, the original occupation class, all of that stuff. And all you're doing is just adjusting that existing policy. What a lot of people don't know is that there's this massive conflict of interest in this. Selling a brand new policy generates a brand new full commission. Modifying an existing policy generates zero commission. And unfortunately, that may have been what impacted this person's recommendation. And it just really didn't make any sense. Could have just been so much easier. But we see people, I mean, sometimes falling for this, but certainly it being recommended more often than it should be. Yeah, that's frustrating. And I mean, imagine all of you listening out there that you were paid based on the amount of prescriptions that you write or the amount of procedures that you do. And that's the only way that you're going to get any money whatsoever is by just writing a bunch of prescriptions. You're going to be compensated for that. If that's the case, you're going to write a whole bunch of prescriptions. Doesn't mean that necessarily that agent was a bad person. I think ethically they were bad, so that would make them bad if this was actually the case, but they might be a good person. Their compensation model was conflicted. And this goes the same way with advisors. I see it time and time again. Oh, my advisor told me this. I'm like, well, you don't really have the best advisor because they're not a fiduciary and looking after you, they're trying to sell a product. I hate the story, but I love the story because I think it illustrates a really good point. It's just unfortunate that this stuff still exists. It shouldn't, but it does. Thank you for bringing this story up. I appreciate it. For anyone that needs term or disability coverage, please reach out to Michael at financialresidency.com slash MR insurance. Michael, thank you for being on the show and being an awesome regular contributor. I'm glad to share, Ryan. Thanks for having me again. Like I say a lot, I really love those financial malpractice segments. I think they're really fun and interjecting those to the podcast itself. We've got a bunch of things happening in the community. Things have been a little delayed. They got really busy at Physician Well Services. We've been working on some really cool projects on financial residency. So we wanted to switch around the podcast basically this first and second week of April. It looks like we're probably going to be doing that in early May instead, but there's going to be some really cool segments that are coming. Like I always talk about on our Friday show, that is our financial health assessments where we hear all of you call in and we go through and, and my partner Casey and I do a financial health assessment. We will be changing up that show quite a bit. So if you like that show, don't worry, not all of it is changing. But if you haven't been a fan of that show because you like learning a lot, but you don't want to hear it maybe necessarily someone else's stuff and what they're doing, I highly encourage you to check out the Friday show starting in May because it will be different and you will miss out a lot 
of stuff. And I'm going to be incorporating our community more into that show, which will be super neat. Hopefully this was helpful to all of you. I really appreciate all of you being here. If you could, please make sure to share this with one other physician family so we can help them feel comfortable about their finances. We can grow our community. If you haven't joined us, please do so. Financialresidency.com slash community. Please subscribe. If you're new here, I know that a lot of you are new within the last 90 to 120 days, and I welcome you into our podcast, into our community. We love all of you. We really hope this has been helpful for you all. Just a reminder, our sponsor for today's show was Contract Diagnostics. They're an excellent firm. We have referred tons of business to them through our financial planning firm, Physician Wealth Services, as well as through the community. John Pino is the owner of Contract Diagnostics. He's been on the show many times. We've got a bunch of segments actually coming up with him this year planned all around contracts because a lot of you have questions around this stuff and I'm not an attorney and it's better to bring on someone who is an expert in this stuff to talk about contract reviews. So I think specialization is something we can all appreciate here. And that is exactly what contract diagnostics does. So please reach out to them. If you have any needs around getting your contract reviewed, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526 or email them at info at contract diagnostics.com. And I always do leave it in the description of the show. All right, it's Monday, so that means Wyatt's taking it away. He's got to earn that little bit of money for his Roth IRA, so we have him do every disclaimer. We're by the book here, I promise. But let's get him on. Make sure you understand the disclaimer. Thank you so much for being here. We love you all, and we'll see you on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye.